Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 57 today of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and uh, today, hot on the heels of uh, our podcasts with uh, Renee Melwood-Lee and uh, S.J. Perry, we have another great one today. Nick Taylor is on the podcast. Nick is currently uh, heading up the new Infinitum Squash Performance Center in Boston. Uh, it's just been uh, just been launched recently. I think uh, you've, a few of you may have seen the video, the slow-mo uh, video of Nick playing against... Uh, Nick Matthew, Nick Taylor and Nick Matthew at the launch. Nick comes on to talk a little bit about uh, Infinitum, talk about his career, which de- which uh, was a very good one. Uh, two British national finals, 10 PSA titles, European champion uh, two times over, and uh, still playing great squash uh, at the Masters level. Um, so we talk quite a bit about his career. Um, most recently, actually in 2017, he had a uh, fi- uh, British, uh, I think it was the British uh, Masters over 45 final against Peter Marshall and uh, what that match meant to him. Uh, we talked quite a bit about that and then on t- into his coaching career which uh, he always had a desire to get into uh, and he did take the initiative once he finished his playing career. I think his the Jersey City uh, squash program which he uh, took over really took off and he talks quite a bit about that and especially uh, how to get into the schools and get the schools involved, and that's where uh, more participation at the junior level, uh, more players playing the game at a younger age. And then uh, from there, he wanted to move on to something new, and that's when he took on uh, his new role in, in Boston. I mean, uh, now uh, in the U.S., I mean, let, let's think maybe 10, 20 years with all these great coaches over there, including Nick, and uh, we've got guys like... Uh, you know, Martin Heath, David Palmer, Terry Lynn Koo, um, uh, and several others over there. Now it's going to become the uh, the new Egypt uh, of squash, I would think, in a few years. And Nick is over there now in Boston. He's launched uh, the Infinitum uh, squash program, which uh, he will talk about. And uh, I think more importantly, he talks quite a bit about uh, uh, coaching and technical aspects of squash, some really interesting stuff. Uh, on the podcast. I know you're going to enjoy this. Uh, Nick Taylor on episode 57. Welcome to uh, episode 57, I believe it is. And uh, we're really excited to have on uh, a former world number, world number 14, England number three. He's got uh, at least 10 PSA titles to his name, uh, two-time European champion, eight-time British national age groups champion, and currently director of Infinitum Squash, uh, based out of Boston. Uh, Nick Taylor is my guest. Nick, great having you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you. Now, uh, I'd really, really uh, love to talk to you about Infinitum. I'm going to leave that to uh, near the end when we get into the coaching side of stuff. But uh, I, do, I would like to ask you how things are going for you uh, in Boston and what it's like being, uh, as they call uh, – call the people from that uh that state uh chowed how's how's it how's life as a chowed these days yeah it's been it's been great it's been um a real challenge obviously bringing the family over i was over here um sort of eight nine months before they were so that was that was tough but that gave me an opportunity of building uh the the academy because we're starting from from scratch um and obviously the family are now over and and still you know, they've only been over a few months, so still settling them. So 
it, it's a big change. It's um, but it's a, a very exciting one for all the family, and and we're very excited about the uh, the challenges ahead as well. Yeah, your your family is uh, how how young is the family? Uh, you have, obviously, you have children. Uh, yeah. So um, obviously, my wife Sarah keeps me in check most of the time. So um, so that's a good thing. But my son, my son's thirteen. Yeah. Uh, avid squash player. Okay. And um, and my daughter's sixteen, who is a very good squash player, but um, has actually started to get back into it since she's been here. So. I'm actually really excited about that, and um, you know we're a big squash family. My wife plays as well, and and um, um, yeah, it's, it's it's great, and it's a great club, and it's a great community, and uh, and we're excited to continue to develop the program there. That's great. I I mean I'm I'm from Nova Scotia, uh, Canada, just north of uh, where you are, and uh, I know squash along the eastern seaboard. Anyways, uh, in that area, you know, you've got uh, Nova Scotia. Uh, uh, Boston, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Toronto, Montreal, lots of really uh, exciting squash venues around there uh, in, in the neighborhood. It is, yeah. And, and, you know, obviously the East Coast is very strong, extremely strong. And like you say, you know, you know New, New York and, and Philadelphia, probably, you know, a couple of the strongest areas. But where, you know, Boston is, uh, you know, it, it holds a special place for me um, playing the the US Open here from 98 through to 2001 and actually my big breakthrough was 98 when I got to the semi-finals of the US Open here oh, and um, you know I just remember the play I just remember the environment and who I stayed with and, and all the people got behind me and it, it just you know I thought if I ever want to live in America I want to live in Boston and I, I genuinely mean that and um, this opportunity came up and what an opportunity it was. That's awesome. That's a, I mean, Boston, you, you, you know, you, you see, you see it a lot in the movies. I've only been there a few times myself, but uh, just the people, just, they seem quite unique and, and very, uh, very interesting characters, you know, and uh, how have you uh, adjusted to uh, uh, the people there, the, the, the true Bostonians, if you will? Yeah, no, no, I agree completely. And, and, um, you know, it has a very sort of European feel to it because Boston, um, you know, I, I always uh, remember the, the, the people got behind me in 98, and I, I, I always remember that. In fact, I can, if I think about it now, it only feels like yesterday, but the, the people are fantastic. They, they really, really are, um, and they've been very supportive um, and very conscious of, you know, the big move that it, that it is moving to a new country, and, um, you know, they, 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 I can't thank the people enough, and, um, and you know, they've been great. Well, that's great to hear. Now, uh, now, Nick, um, I wanted to take a look back, if you don't mind, uh, uh, at your uh, earlier at your playing career, which was obviously a very good one. Uh, you reached number fourteen in the world, and you had a very good run for a few years there. Uh, obviously, nineteen ninety-eight being one of them, and before that, um, just in general, uh, your years on the PSA tour, where you won ten PSA titles and uh, uh, did quite well. Uh, what were those years like for you in a nutshell, uh, generally speaking? Well, yeah, it was, um, it, it was, it, it was, a, it was an interesting, I mean, obviously I come from, you know, an, an era which was, you know, Simon Park, Peter Marshall, Del Harris, Mark Challoner, Paul Johnson, to name but a few. So um, I was always sort of tagging along with those guys really so, and and not forgetting you know Simon Park I mean people don't realize that 
Simon Park was the number one under-19s player and the number one senior player in the same month. Huh. Yeah. So, so that shows the level of, of the player as a junior. So I was always sort of catching up these players and I was around, you know, the likes of Jonah Barrington and all, this, all these amazing ex-players and coaches and inspirational figures. And um, you know, it, it it was it really uh, it really did it really did set me on a you know inspired me to be a professional player. And obviously, you know, then joining then joining PSA, um, you know, it, it, it just really gave me a sort of a, sorry about that. Um, no problem. That's Boston. Um, no, it's exactly. It sort of adds <laughs> a bit of character to the interview. Yeah. So um, you know, it gave me a real stepping stone and a, and a real uh, a lot of belief in regards to you know once I what I needed to do to join PSA and uh, and started me off on that journey and and um, you know it was you know a pretty successful one and and gave me an opportunity as well, Jerry, to you know look at the era of players that I grew up with and you know tagged on to Jamshed towards the end of, of his career and looked at how he moved and talked to coaches because I always wanted to be a coach when I, when I finished playing. So, right. you know, I looked at it two ways really as a player development and a, and a coach development side as well. Right on. Now you came up, as you mentioned, uh, with all those uh, great, uh, great British players. Uh, you reached in 1996, which must uh, that that period there, three, two or three year period, 96, 97, 98, sounds to me like uh, you were in your prime during the, those years. 96, you reached your first uh, British uh, national final, which uh, to uh, to a man, every and woman, uh, every time I've asked a, a British, I've had a British uh, person on the podcast. That's the one event and the British Open uh, that they want to win. So, what did it feel like for you at that time uh, in 1996 to get to the British Open, uh, to the British National Final, where you uh, ultimately you you faced Peter Nickel in the final that year? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it's um, you know to. to I mean, you're talking about in that in that era, it was the strongest, probably. The, it, um, I mean, it was the strongest nation in the world, um, you know, without a doubt. So, you know, to get to a final of the nationals is, um, you know, is is I suppose similar to you know getting to the final of of a major major event nowadays. So, you know, it was very special um, time for me. But I, I think before I sort of move on to that, I think there was a there was a big turning point in my career and. And that was a player called Phil Whitlock, who obviously you remember. And I remember Phil uh, ringing me up one day and saying, um, you know, at the time he was about 11 in the world. He was um, he was a, a, a he was actually ill at the time. He'd had, he'd had some chronic fatigue. He'd had a virus, and he was coming back. And he rang me up and he said, "Do you fancy a game?" And I was like, "Wow, this is like you know amazing." So I went to play Phil. This was actually probably a couple of years before 96 but it was a massive turning point in my career because I played him throughout the summer and I actually lost 27 love 9 love 9 love 9 love the first time I played him and by the end of the summer I beat him 3-2 so that was a huge turning point in belief which obviously again gave me this sort of stepping stone to then have the belief of of you know getting to or competing with some of the top players in in England um so you know, it, it was amazingly uh, proud moment to to get to a final like that, and and sort of again gives you, you know, the, the game at that level becomes a lot a lot more sort of mental. So, mm. um, you know, give me a lot of belief to compete with the top get 
top guys and um, and and was you know an amazing achievement to get to the final. And that took me on to then being able to play into the European Championships, which obviously I won in '96 and then retained my title in '97. So becoming two times uh, European champion was um, was pretty was pretty uh, pretty special. That's great. Um, now, now uh, Phil Whitlock, as uh, as far as I know, I think he's currently coaching uh, Declan James, and, and I think his daughter uh, Emily is doing quite well on the women's side. Was it? Um, did he just call you out of the blue, or was it something? You know, he maybe he saw something in you. Uh, uh, maybe he wanted to, to give you some advice, or, or coach, or, or something like that. Um, I mean, I, I mean, Phil. Phil is. Um, I think he was ringing because he knew I was going to be pretty reliable. He knew I was going to give a hundred and ten percent. So I think it was more of a benefit thing for him playing, being able to play someone. But certainly was was for me. That's for sure. Yeah, that so, reliability you know, I, I mean, is so so important, isn't it? As uh, for for to find a good training yeah. partner, it, it's tough individually it's tough to find someone you you can rely on in terms of your own yeah you know, abs- ab- absolutely and um and um you, with, without a shadow of a doubt without a shadow of a doubt and that and that's basically why he called you then okay i think so yeah i think that's why you know and obviously you're just you know being uh being someone who loves of that of that caliber and who, who, who was a player who was was actually taking games off Jan Khan and oh, yeah. you know very very uh, world, uh, very, right? very strong very strong um, and um, you know so so yeah I mean it was you know I, 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 it, it, I, when I wasn't when I played him at, at the game I was in the changing rooms after and I was just sucking all the the knowledge out of him and what he did training wise and uh, and learning a lot from him and that was uh, that that was amazing. Well, I know uh, when I had Declan uh, James on the podcast, he had uh, j- he just spoke of him glowingly, and and it really, as you know, uh, Declan's playing some some great squash now, and he attributes that uh, a lot of that to uh, uh, the coaching that he's had with with Phil. I mean, Phil Phil's very di- Phil runs. Look, I mean, it's a little bit like Rob Rob Owens Academy as well. I mean, you know, there's you know what players need is a, a solid base. Someone who's going to be very disciplined. Someone who's going to tell them the truth. Um, yeah. Is not going to rub players' egos. Um, you know, so those environments are absolutely crucial, and you see that with Robbo Wins Academy. Um, you see that with what Phil's done with his players, and and you know Nick Matthew, what Nick Matthew's doing, and you know uh, um, these hubs that they've created is is essential for players having the base, and but having the right coaching environment as well is is essential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, if you're just looking looking back to that that uh, national final against Peter, and I think you played um, uh, Lee Beachill in the second one. Was it 2001, I believe? Uh, what do you remember yes, about those yeah. matches in particular? And, and uh, uh, were there was either one a, an opportunity for you to actually? Uh, did you feel that you had a chance to win? I know game one against Beachill was close. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I'll correct you on the '96. Actually, I actually played Stephen Mead in the final, okay. not Peter Nickel. Okay. So I played Stephen Mead in the final of '96, and and I'll be honest, I got absolutely destroyed in the final. I think it was, um, you know, I, I think the yeah, I think the nerve. There was there was a little bit of nerves. Uh, Meadie was a player which was who was very difficult to play. 
And funnily enough, I played Meade exactly a week after the Nationals in Yorkshire League and beat him 3-0. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, he showed my squash was there, but at, but at the time it was... And, and these situations, and, you know, you, you can look at lots of players who have been up in big events. Um, you know, Lauren Massaro played the World Open, was, was up against Noel Chabini and ends up losing. And the, these situations are, are very tough, but you, you learn so much. Well, you, you can learn so much from them. Yeah. Um, and that was luckily early on in, on in my career. And again, it was 2001 against Beechill. And Beechill, again, was a great opportunity to, to win a national title. But, you know, Lee was well, he, a, 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 world number one. a phenomenal player. World yeah. number one. Yeah. You know, I don't know how he didn't win a world title. I you know, certainly was there thereabouts having match balls against Linko in Qatar that year. So, you know, and beat everyone. I mean, yeah. Lee Beaker was, was a phenomenal player. So, um, again, it, you know, you, ca- you catch him. I was probably expecting to win or expected to win in my own town of Manchester. So there was a little bit of pressure there. And But Lee Lee was just too good on the day. He was, he, he was playing too well and then went on and progressed and, beat Peter Nickel very quickly after that and um, and all the greats and became the world number one player. Yeah. So I, I have no regrets on on, um, on on those. You know, it would have been nice to, to have my name on as a as a as a national champion. But um, you know, I played to, to you know the, the Lee Beachel match was definitely different than, than the uh, Stephen Meads match, but um right. both massive learning experiences for me. Yeah, for sure. The the me uh, Stephen Meads is a name. I, I I know the name. I've I think I've actually seen. I saw him play in Singapore. I I tried to qualify for for a tournament in Singapore. He was a, he won it. I think no no. Uh, Paul Price won it. I beat him in the final. But uh, yeah, the, me Meadsy was um, me Meadsy didn't get a lot of credit, but he was a no, very no. difficult customer. Um, I think I think, but, I think um, the, the funniest thing I've ever seen uh, uh, on the squash uh, on on YouTube when it was um, I think it's. Um, Simon Park's anecdote about uh, Jan Khan going through the list of... Oh, yeah, that's a great story. It's <laughs> a great story. <laughs> who, who is, who is me? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's yeah, yeah. yeah, very good one. Yeah. Well, let, let's fast forward a bit now. Uh, 20 years, actually, uh, Nick. Uh, and uh, in the 2017, 20-plus years, 2017 uh, British National over 45 final where you, uh, you played who you describe as uh, one of your idols. Uh, I think one of every... Yeah squash players idols uh uh peter marshall in the final and uh and you beat him three to two uh to win that event um now i'm just wondering you mentioned that uh, you had to deal with the of having to play him so uh first of all how did it feel to win that against peter and uh event and and uh, how did you overcome those feelings uh, of awe that you described that you had before uh or leading up to the match yeah well i mean that was obviously i'd, I'd won the world title um, so I was the current world champion. I was holder of the national. So to have Peter in the draw was, um, and I mean Peter was playing exceptionally well. Um, yeah. You know he was still sort of beating players like Joel making in practice and and players like that. So he was well, he, he was he playing was PSL uh, PSL matches and winning uh, for. Uh, for I know he, he he was he was probably still playing. I mean Peter still got the best backhand lens in the game, even today. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, until you play against it, you don't realise the quality of it. So, you know, I, it was, it was that, that for me was, there was a lot of pressure there because obviously I love playing in my hometown of Manchester. You know, I was the world champion and I wanted, that for me was, was you know, in the back of my mind, that was my, that was my world championship match because I know Peter was looking at maybe playing the worlds and 
didn't in the end due to family commitments and things. So, you know, it was a massive match. I mean, it, it made it extra special, really, uh, because it was, you know, the Nationals decided to video the match because they thought there'd be a lot of interest in it. Um, so it's something that I can look back on. And, and I played really, really good squash um, and tactically, you know, really got my got my tactics spot on um, against him. And, um, you know, I managed to get the win. So it, it was it, w- it was a massive win for me um, to win another national title, to become the British Open, the national champion and the world champion in the same year as well. Wow, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and and look, I mean, the Masters is the Masters, but it, it's a grow. The Masters is growing, oh, sure. um, and it's still nice to have a British Open and a, and a national and a, and a World Open title in the same month, in the same year. Yeah, the so Masters it, it this was, year. Uh, it was. Yeah, sorry, Nick. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. That's fine. No, no. So it was. It was a very special moment for me to get that win. Yeah, well, I was just going to say uh, the Masters in uh, Virginia, I think, or West Virginia uh, this year, uh, in quite a few of the age categories, are, are, were especially over 35, was a very deep draw. You, uh, guys like Alistair Walker and uh, Lawrence Anjuma, uh, Whale El Hindi, all playing in, in that event. And Absolutely. Throughout, uh, throughout all the age groups. Uh, yeah. Uh, some top Yeah, and, and that, was, that, was really, that was really unknown meant a f- good few years ago that the players just weren't playing, but the it shows what it means to players. I mean, LJ's flying over from from Holland. It's a big commitment, you know. And yeah. and like you say, it was it was so strong. And you had Brett Martin in there. You know, you got Sarah Fitzgerald in there. You know, all these like the greats of the game are now playing the Masters because it does mean something. Um, you know, and it, it's it's um, you know, I was very honoured to to be able to share some stories with Fitzy and 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 Brett Martin, who's who's just a a great down-to-earth individual who spent a lot of time with my son and Diego Elias was there front row watching matches and because yeah, his yeah. dad was playing and he got it, it, it was just and that event I have to say was was I mean there was 5,000 matches scheduled in one week <laughs> I mean yeah. try and get your head around that I mean it is Mark Allen did an unbelievable job and um, it just shows that uh, you know US squash is just a driving it's going to be a driving force in world squash in the future there's no doubt about that oh for sure it was really well run uh, and and i was able to follow quite a few of my friends uh, that were playing uh, on youtube they had all, most of the matches or quite a few of them were, were live so that was great too yeah yeah absolutely they, they did a really really good job i was very impressed it was a, it was a great week so so the next one's in uh, krakow i believe Yes, it is. It's at um, it's uh, at the Asta La Vista Club, which has got thirty-two squash courts. It's incredible, yeah. And I believe I don't know if this is true, but they're building apparently they're building ten more for the event, the World <laughs> that's Masters. Event. A, that's awesome. I, so mean, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. That if that's true. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I, but, I don't um, know. But I, I've heard that that venue, that that particular venue, uh, uh, usually always busy as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine it is. I mean, it's uh, this is the great thing about you know Europe is starting to get a lot stronger, and um, you know England do have to be careful because um, you know <laughs> when I was playing senior squash, if we were playing teams like Czech Republic or Poland um, and these nations, I mean, you could you know you you wouldn't have to think much about getting an easy three 0 win. Well, that's changing. Oh yeah. Um, sure. You know, and and, and for sure. Sure. So, you know, it, it's, it's good for the game and, you know, I just hope that, um, 
Yeah, you, you, know, can England, see, you can see you that sort of creeping in now a little bit. I mean, look at Germany, uh, France, obviously, but Ger Germany is a country that generally over the years, yeah, they might have had one or two guys, but now they've got actually two guys at least uh, that are that are going to be competing for for the top spot in the world, especially Simon Rosner, but Raphael. Uh, Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they've got two guys. In yeah, and that's, that's what's going to inspire, Jerry. That's what's going to inspire the younger generation players yeah. as well. Yeah, definitely. So now, um, now let's move on just to, uh, now to the to the coaching side of things, uh, Nick. You know, obviously, you've been involved in coaching for several years uh, before you you crossed the pond. So uh, you mentioned earlier that that uh, you've always had your eye on coaching even while you were playing. So what ultimately? Uh, when did you get your start uh, coaching, and then what what ultimately uh, led you to cross the pond uh, uh, to Boston? I guess that, that there's a lot of time in, in, yeah. in there, but uh. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I mean, I when I turned professional at the age of 17, I went and based myself um, in just outside of Manchester with um, my brother-in-law, who was a guy called John Malieve, who was actually one of the only players to beat Jahangir Khan. John was an unbelievable coach, um, and he actually initially got me into coaching. And saying, look, you know, you should do a little bit. It'll help your game. Um, it'll give you a little bit of pocket money to help you with, you know, funding your squash career. And that, that's how I initially sort of got into coaching. And hmm. um, obviously being around John for nearly 10 years sort of gave me a, a lot of knowledge um, and, you know, experience not just as a player, but things that I could then try and pass on to, even though I was young, pass on to some of the guys that I was coaching. Um, and then um, I you know, d didn't really coach a lot when I was on the tour. But then towards the end of my career, about 2003, 2004, I was approached by Manchester Squash who said, look, we'd love to have your name um, associated with uh, Manchester. Uh, you're a Manchester guy. Um, you know, um, you know, we wanted to set the Nick Taylor Academy up. So we set a, um, an academy up, which was mainly for elite, the elite juniors of, of Manchester, um, and I was running those sessions when I was about, and uh, when I wasn't touring, I was still sort of still touring, but coming towards the end, I knew it was probably the right time. I wasn't I had a young family, and you know I was just struggling a little bit with not not the playing. I was loving the playing, but the the, the travel and everything that came with it. I I just sort of had enough, really. Yeah. So I started running the Nick Taylor Academy and, and worked with six or eight junior players and, and that grew into, you know, about 30 elite players who um, some of them went on to become British junior champions. Some became British number ones. Um, and that really um, sort of ignited um, my, um, you know, once then I retired, I was then offered a full-time post with Manchester and then that changed to the MSA, which was the Manchester Squash Academy. Mm -hmm. Um, and and that was growing the sport from grassroots. I was not just um, responsible for the elite juniors, but I was responsible for grassroots development. And that's where I really got, um, you know, a real interest in. in uh, I love coaching all levels, whether they're three-year-old kid who's just starting or whether it's uh, Campbell Grayson who's top 40 in the world. I, I, just, I guess that I would have opened your eyes to, uh, to something new then, wouldn't it? Uh, that whole element of Definitely. side of things. Yeah, definitely, and I think that's that's what's massively been was lacking in the UK from a junior development point of view was get into the schools, 
you know, it's hard work, but you reap the rewards. And, you know, that's what we did in Manchester. We had um, over 15,000 kids through the programme. Um, we had all, well over 100 kids who were playing outside of um, uh, curriculum activities um, and competing. And um, and that was that was a real, um, you know, sort of big learning curve for me from, from a, being able to develop academies side. And then I, I just sort of, you know, I did that for four years and, you know, I just felt, you know, I'd done enough there and then I got this great opportunity in Jersey and I was very, very, very busy with work and I wasn't really seeing, the, you know, Sarah and the kids and because not only I had my day job, I was playing at night in league and I was doing England squads and I was doing Lancashire squads and I was, I was just getting asked more and more to do things. And I thought, geez, I, I, and the Jersey opportunity gave me an opportunity, one, to develop a program that was really nothing was really happening there. Um, but have, have the opportunity of, of not having to play Leeds, but seeing the family a little bit more. So, um, and, and, and actually, uh, you know, a lot of, I, I, I remember having my first meeting with the director of sport in, in Jersey. And sorry, uh, you know, uh, Nick, said, where, where is, uh, sorry, Nick, where is Jersey for, for people who might Jersey, know? Jersey in the Jersey, Jersey in the channel Islands. So it's a hundred okay. miles off the, off the South coast of England. Small oh, yeah. island, there's five islands, and Jersey is the biggest one of those. Okay. Um, so I remember my first meeting there, Jerry, with with uh, the director of sports, and I said, "This, this is these are my plans. I'm going to get in all 24 primary schools. I'm going to deliver squash to all these schools. I'm going to really raise the profile of the sport." And I remember looking at me and laughing and saying, "You've got absolutely no chance." He said, "There's no way you'll get in all 24 primary schools," and within six months I've coached twelve and a half thousand kids in all twenty four primary schools. Wow. wow um, from the from, from from the age of three up to the age of, of eleven. So that, that gives us one most of these kids have never heard of squash. So that gave me an opportunity of one introducing the sport. That then gave me an opportunity of giving a leaflet about our, our after school programs and weekend clubs. And very quickly we had twenty or thirty kids in the program. And that actually grew to becoming um, Actually, I would say probably the biggest um, squash development program in Europe. I mean, we had over 15,000 kids. We had over 120 kids in a five-court squash facility. Now, I, I don't know any other club um, in, the, in, the, in, in Europe that would have that amount of kids in a five-court club. So, um, you know, it, it, was, it was a special time. I spent nine and a half years there. And, um, you know, I just got to the point where I held some PSA events, held some major events, their European team championships yeah. and woke up one morning and said to Sarah, I need a new challenge. Um, and, you know, and I managed to, you know, speak to Chessin Gertler, who's the founder of Infinitum, who's a really, really top guy, understands what we want to achieve from a U.S. point of view. There's a lot of great things about U.S. squash, but there's a lot of bad things about it as well. Um, and you know it's um, it, it, it's this is my next challenge, and I want to make Infinitum the biggest academy in the U.S. Oh, definitely uh, sounds like you're on your way. I, I was actually uh, I was watching a couple of, um, or I noticed you had a few videos on uh, squash skills, and one of them had to do with what you were just talking about there, uh, bringing bringing squash to the schools and developing uh, from the grassroots level. I think you had a video 
on that. So in a nutshell, uh, or just a thumbnail for any coaches or, or anyone who's listening who might be involved in that way and are struggling uh, maybe to find success, what were the keys in terms of getting uh, people, get, getting the schools interested and in getting those uh, juniors on the squash court? Because once they get on the court, then that's, uh, you know, they're going to enjoy the game. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the biggest frustration for me is there's a lot of coaches out there and there's some, I'm talking about England now, you know, there's some great coaches doing some great work, but there's not enough coaches who are, who are, who are passionate enough to do that, that groundwork. It's like building a business. You, you, you don't start a business and are successful overnight. You've got to build a business. You've got to build it. It's hard work. You know, there's a, there's, there's a lot of toughness goes with it and a lot of hard times and, and it's exactly the same with this. You're going into schools and you're trying to inspire kids who know nothing about your sport. And there's not enough being done. So these young coaches are just, they, they want a ready-made program. Yeah. And it's, it, it just doesn't happen. Well, that, so, that's the problem you know, with squash it, now, it, isn't it? it? I mean, it's not, a, it's not as popular a game that, uh, as it could be or as it should be. And I think part of the reason why is we don't have uh, as many feet on the ground, uh, as they say, as we should. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And, and, and you know, we, we're always going to struggle as a sport like that. But that's what makes our sport so special, Jerry, as well. You know, we're not going to be a soccer or a football. You, you, just, you just can't. We, our sport is never going to be. It looks amazing on TV. But it looks amazing on TV because we know the game. And <laughs> yeah. that's not going to win. That's, that's of course, it's, it's reaching new audiences and there's more countries playing and there's more people playing. I get that. But... You know, we, we're never going to be a soccer. We're never going to be a major, major sport like that. But, you know, we've proven that, you know, you can go, I can go into a small island like Jersey and get 15,000 kids experience squash and have one of the biggest academies in Europe, if not the world, um, you know, on a small island, nine miles, by, nine miles by five miles. So if you can do it there, and people said there's no way you will do it, it just can't be done. But I'd prove them all wrong. Because I love the game of squash and I love inspiring people to play. And we need more people like that. And we need less people talking a good game and we need more people doing it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, you know we, we can't make people do that, but that's what's got to happen. And, you know, Northwest Counties League, for instance, is, is a classic example. Northwest Counties League, is, which incorporates, you know, Lancashire, Merseyside, Cheshire, is, was the biggest league in the world. Three and a half thousand players, over 600 teams playing every week. Mm. Now, those since I left Manchester, those three and a half thousand players are down to 1,800. So we've now lost nearly half of those players. And, you know, they're still talking about, they've been saying the same thing, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But they haven't done it and we're 10 years down the line. So another 10 years, that league is not going to exist if we don't do something about it now. And the clubs have to take responsibility. They have to get into these local schools. And the information is on there online. And I'm more than happy. I've always said to England Squash that I'd, I'd get involved. England Squash had never once spoke to me about how I developed the sport. And that's fine. But, you know, I, I, I care about England Squash. England Squash was very good to me. Um, you know, I'm very passionate about the game. And I want England to be, again the best nation in, in the world. And, but that's disappearing very fast. 
Yeah, there was, uh, I remember over the summer, there was a bit of controversy in England squash where there was some, uh, a series of clubs that were closed. Uh, and I forget the name of something, maybe Lloyd's or something. David Lloyd. David yeah. Lloyd, yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm not sure if that has anything to do with what we're talking about now, but uh, I'm sure it does. I mean, club closures and, and things like that. Uh, um, we have to try to nip that in the bud uh, in some way across across you know, across the world, I think. Uh, okay, so, so Jerry, you, you, you're absolutely spot on there. And, and what I'm going to say now is you've got, so the David Lloyd is a big national um, sports club, which has over 200 courts. Now, some of those club, clubs are very proactive. I know Lauren Misaro's club with Danny, three courts, very proactive. Uh, the stuff Niall Engra is doing in London, over two of those David Lloyds are very active. But most of those courts in those David Lloyd centres are sat there doing nothing. So what are David Lloyd going to do? They're not going to let the courts sit there doing nothing. What it needs is the players in there to get into the local schools to get the kids on the court, and that's not happening. So the media in England, okay, just slag off um, David Lloyd, but actually you've got to look at the bigger picture. The players and, and the, these clubs have to take responsibility yeah. if they want to grow the game. And it, and it drives me insane that people are so... They're so, it's so quick to point fingers and, and they, they have to look back on themselves at these club committees and committees drive me mad because you know, you're mixing professionals with committee members, they don't get it and, they, and not all in every case some are fantastic but in most cases they're driving the club that they say they love into the ground mm. and if that doesn't change we're going to lose more and more and more clubs in the UK no, for sure. I mean, it is. So, it's all for guy for the David Lloyd uh, uh, that that business. I mean, obviously they're they're looking at the bottom line, and, and uh, that's 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 basically what it is, isn't it? It's the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you know, it, you, we we only see sort of the negative side of um, we only see the negative. We only see, we only hear yeah, one. Very Alan emotional. Got the a emotional lot. side, yeah. Oh, look! When I talk about squash. When I talk about these things, Jerry, I, 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 I am so passionate about this game, and yeah. it, and it, and it, I get, I get extremely upset when I hear about these clubs closing down. But these clubs don't have to close down, and and you've got, you've got clubs that are thriving. Pontefract Squash Club was a club that was near closure, but because of Mick Todd and because of Malcolm Wilstrop and their passion and and what they did to that club. It is amazing. The club is amazing. And you've got Hallam Shoe and Nick Matthew and you've got these pockets of clubs. But Jerry, Pontefract needs 10 clubs around it to be a success. Yeah. Otherwise, how are these kids going to be inspired to continue to play? Yeah. So, you know, we all have a responsibility here to, to, to drive the sport forward. And, um, you know, I'm so passionate about it. And, you know, did I want to leave England? No. Um, I, I didn't. You know, I wanted to develop academies, but it, it's just, you know, it's just so difficult dealing with clubs and committees who don't understand and who don't have the passion. And I'm now in an environment in America working with Chessing Girl, who's the founder of Finneton, who shares the same passion. And, you know, and, and he's, he's happy with, you know, to, to share my expertise. And, and we're going to grow this academy into something very special. Yeah, so Infinitum, uh, Nick, I, uh, just to move on there uh, uh, and to talk a little bit about this new uh, 
new endeavor of yours. Infinitum is uh, exact. It's a squash academy, and it's more high uh, high yeah. performance academy. Am I correct? Um, not. I mean, yes, but but definitely, we we are looking. We 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 have we have kids as young as three, and we have we have our adult members who are over seventy. I mean, we cater for all levels as well as the pros. Mm -hmm. So we have some aspiring players coming in. We're working with Campbell Grayson, who's currently on tour. Yeah. We want to create Infinitum as a hub for, for the for the European players if yeah. they want to fly into Boston because it's the nearest transatlantic destination. Then they can they can they can come in and they can train under me and the team, and they have a base to work off. And then they can get the Amtrak around America, and and it makes a lot of sense. Um, to, to have that base. So yes, we want to be high performance, but that high performance drives your younger participation and inspires people to, um, to, to get better. So, so we're, we're a community-based club, but we can provide expertise at, at grassroots all the way up to, to world-class level. So um, I was just, I was talking to, uh, this, this is a, an aside, I was talk, I've talked to this to Martin Heath about this, and I've also spoken with a few others. Uh, you're, you were mentioning about, uh, you know, Boston as a hub, and then you've got, you know, you've got the train, you've got Chicago, you've got Philly, Toronto, Montreal. Uh, something that's missing from squash in North America, which uh, Europe is really, uh, you know, really benefited from is the, are the squash pro leagues, the PSLs, the, the, uh, you know, the, the Dutch league, the German league. Um, it's something that's yeah. sort of in the back of the minds, I think of a lot of people now, maybe uh, putting together in a timely manner, uh, uh, a squash league on the Eastern sea or in North America during the, when the events take place uh, over there. Oh, I mean, I mean, that, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, that, that would be an, an absolute, um, uh, great! It's a great idea. That's something that um, that should happen. I think, you know, it's very accessible. Um, I don't see why not. Why not? No, no, no. I, 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 I agree. I think it's, I think it's amazing, and I think it would be, um, you know, I think it would be a great. I mean, we, we, you know, we want to bring professional players into Infinitum because because bringing professional players inspires our younger players, and um, yeah. you know, we're going to run a PSA next year, but. Whenever I want to, whenever I organise or run a PSA event, and I did four of those in in Jersey, there has to be a legacy attached to that uh, event. So there's no point in bringing 24 players into your event and then they leave. What impact are those players going to have? So it's a similar thing with what you're talking about there. You can link it in, and and that's what people like to support as well. If they, you know, if you go to a potential sponsor and say, look, this is going to outreach into 30 40 local kids people will support that yeah um so i, I think that's i think that's a great I idea mean, they, they just um, had uh, i was talking uh, sarah jane perry just said she spent a whole month in in the, in the states i mean that that's yeah yeah me, I mean, it would have been a perfect opportunity I, I'm, I'm certain many of the players were around that would have been a perfect opportunity yeah, I, to get in two or I, three uh, i mean I, yeah Absolutely, and I, and I was I was doing the same thing uh, twenty odd years ago. I mean, I would come to the states in January. I would play Apuamas, and then I would play Greenwich, and then I would have a week where I had, you know, I did some coaching at the local clubs, and and then played TLC to end. So you know, at, at the end of it, so I, you know, I used to have a month every year, and I think a lot of players do, yeah. um, you know, and I think that's that's you know another another opportunity is to actually do a 
you know, a, an East Coast tour event if it's yeah. not a league event, you know. So you, so you, so you know, instead of just randomly holding events, you try to tie into an event in Chicago, an event in, um, you know, Philly, an event in New York, an event in Boston, um, and you make those events a good size, and and they all work together, and and there's a, you know, a four event tour there straight away for for players to come in, and in in the meantime. You know, they're having to do things, you know, with the local squash community, yeah, which inspires sure. these kids. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that takes me on to the point that I made about, you know, U.S. squash is, I mean, it is, is flying in regards to new courts being built. I mean, I coached a young lad last night, first time on a squash court. I said to him, why are you playing squash? He said, my school have just built six brand new courts. They've opened today. Wow. And that's happening all over. I'm certainly probably more on the East Coast, but it's happening everywhere. The, the, the schools are building courts. So, you know, there's going to be so many more courts in the near future. Um, and, and, you know, I've lost my track of thought that. Yes. So yeah. my point is, Jerry, is that I want to see more U.S. kids playing the game because they want to play it, not because the parents want them to play it because there might be a, you know, a college route at the end of it. We know there's a college collegiate pipeline there and that and that's fantastic. Yeah. But we need to get these kids playing the game of squash because they want to play squash. And the reason that's so important is because you've got to retain those players after they finish college. So some of them are going to go on to play the tour, but some of them are going to keep squash for life. And these you know, it's very, very important that you keep these players in the game because these are the guys that are going to drive this participation of the sport forward. Oh, for sure. I, uh, I think you, uh, you hit the nail on the head and uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, not, not here in this podcast, but in a, in a video on uh, when, when is the right time to, to uh, get your kids started in squash. And you, you basically just said the earlier, the better uh, three years old. And, and I couldn't agree more because that, like you were saying, uh, that's when, they that that that'd be their first sport basically yeah so so you know this, this, this when is the right timing i mean some coaches say oh you're 16 you're too late i mean it's nonsense you know it, it, the earlier they start the better but we want to get you know i want to get you know as many people playing the game as you know from three up to 75 you get them on call you inspire them so the, the key to starting a kid young is getting the right coach that's extremely important. So working in the right environment, working in the right in the right structure, having a coach that is going to inspire you. And like you say, you're not fighting then when a kid gets to 13 or 14. You're saying, oh, you're going to play, you know, are you going to come in and, and play in our league? Oh, well, I can't because I've got, you know, I've got rugby on that day or I've got, I'm playing football or I'm doing this. You know, you, the kids are then making that choice when they start young that actually, I'm not saying they have to specialise but they, they should be playing other sports. That's for definite. But squash is their number one sport. Yeah, no, for sure. And when you start at that age, well, at, you know, between the age of three and say eight, nine, or ten, I mean, you just, it just becomes a natural thing uh, for you. Uh, that the squash thing, squash becomes uh, you, basically at that age. Absolutely, absolutely. It. And and what a great sport it is. I mean, oh, for you sure. know, forget the opportunities that it creates from. A college point of view or professional point of view but you know it makes kids tough it helps them in school it helps them in life um you know it, it, it's you know life's tough 
And if you can give them the skills on that on that court, you know, where they shut the door and they've got that gladiatorial sport and you get these kids doing it at, at five, six, seven years of age, younger and slightly older, it, it's just amazing. Um, you yeah, know, and, that, and that's always on the like back of my On the squash court, is there? And then at the end of the game, shake it. It's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. It's the best feeling. It's the best sport in the world for that. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, all for producing players. But like I said to you, Infinitum is about about a community of players where players can come in, they can play players of a, of a higher ability, they, can, they have to play players of a lower ability. Um, and, and that's how we run our sessions. And all our kids are on the court and they're smiling and enjoying the sport. And if they're doing that, they want to come back for more. And if they're coming back for more, they're improving quicker. And if they're improving quicker, they get more success in competitions and things like that. So, you know, that's what we're creating. And um, I don't see enough of that in the US. Uh, but having said that, you know, I've not been... You know, I've not been long in the US, and I'm sure good things are happening. But it, it, it's, it, there's so much potential here to grow okay. this game, and um, you know, I think it's a chance, opportunity of being in, in the Olympics if the Americans get behind it like they, they are, like they are doing. Well, I really think. I mean, you're right about that. I, I think definitely there there have been inroads made in the US and in Canada. I think a lot of it might have to do with uh, the college game. I mean, you've got the best players in the world at, at the junior level now coming to the US and playing there playing against Canadians and Americans, and that's just going to rub off uh, on the level of squash uh, in, the, in the continent. No doubt about it. And I think, you know, the expertise is getting better in these colleges and these schools. And the facilities, Jerry, are just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I've, I mean, you know, some of these, even these elementary schools and, and high schools with these, I mean, they're, they're better than our national centres. They're better they're, these facilities are better than what, you know, our Nick Matthews are training on. They're just unbelievable. So, um, you know, the, the, you know if you, you've got the facilities, you build it, the players will come. And if the right coaching is there, the players will, will, um, will evolve. Yeah. And uh, US, US will be a, a, a world leader. There's, there's no question about that. Absolutely. Now, uh, now, Nick, uh, I just bought a, a box of, of a double yellow dot uh, squash balls. And I, then I just read your piece on squashmad.com uh, about red dot balls uh, being uh, an int- integral part of your, your solo training, which, you know, after reading yeah, it, I thought, yeah, well, that, that makes sense. Can you just uh, elaborate on that for a bit? And when, when uh, would you yeah, uh, incorporate I, the red dot? Uh, uh, I mean, I, I think that's, that's a great idea. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was actually talking to uh, Kevin Clitchley from US Wash last night. Actually, Clip. he visited Infinitum, and yeah, and uh, yeah, and um, and he um, we're having exactly the same discussion. And you know, I I, I mean, the double yellow dot ball is 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 a little bit of an enemy of ours uh, in regards to you know grassroots development. Um, I see too many kids uh, try to hit a double yellow dot ball, which they can't keep warm and they're, they're using flat techniques and they're using very risky motions to try and get the ball warm. Uh, it's very frustrating for me seeing that because it's, that's certainly not enjoyable. There's nothing more enjoyable than seeing a kid hitting a 15 or 20 shot rally, having to emotionally work out, you know, the, the game and where they're hitting and, and how to, how to not hit the tin through getting the correct grip in the open racket face and the red dot and blue dot balls and, and not the Dunlop one because the Dunlop, Blue, Max and Progress are, 
are not very good balls. They're too heavy. They're too big. Mm. Um, uh, so, I mean, I want to see more coaches using those balls. I mean, I use blue dots. I use red dots. I mean, I, I showed a session last night with Kevin. We used a red dot ball. We have six-year-old kids having 15 to 20 shot rallies. Wow. That's um, yeah. uh, you know, and it, 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 and they were loving it, and they're, they're laughing, they're smiling, they're sweating, yeah. they're working it out, they're asking questions. Why did I hit that ball out? Where well, you're a little bit, your open racket face is great, but you you need to aim a little bit lower. The hang time is there on those balls, and you don't need to keep them warm. Yeah, the rubber, oh, yeah. the compound of the rubber is keeping the bounce in the ball, the hang time, which is absolutely crucial. Yeah, that's so the biggest I want to frustration for, for any for any beginner player is the ball. That you always hear them say that it, it, the ball doesn't bounce. Not exactly, um, you know, and you know, it, the coaches are, are fearful. And people say, "Well, how do you adapt to a, a double yellow dot from from using a red dot?" Well, you just do. I mean, my son has played with a red dot pretty much the whole of his junior career in Jersey. He trains. He trains and plays with a red dot ball. So mm -hmm. his, his ability with a racket, I mean, he's, you know, he needs to get a bit stronger, but his ability to racket, he can lift, he can hold, he can have, he's got touch, he's got feel. So the foundations are there for him. Once his strength comes, and hopefully his passion is still there, mm -hmm. he, he's got to be a great player. And, you know, you see so many junior players who, are, who become British junior champions by just having a good serve. Uh, under 11's level because yeah, they're yeah. using a freezing cold double yellow dot ball well that's not learning the game for me so you know I think I think the double yellow dot ball is, is I think they all have a place in, in junior development yeah and coaches have to use them in my opinion have to use them more and we, we've seen huge success with it uh, and I've, I've done it from you know since back in 2004 um, so I've used it throughout all our programs and we'll continue to Oh, and, and I know Jerry as well. And uh, Jerry, I know that these professional players, and I wouldn't mention names, but I know there's still top world-class players from England who still train with a with a red dot ball. Right. Well, and what what would they be doing? Would they just be would they be doing? Uh... They'd be doing they'd be doing they'd be doing solo practice routines. I mean, when I turned professional at 17, uh, my coach John Lalee uh, sent us on a court, and he said, "Right, I want you to do a solo practice. He'd give us a solo practice sheet." which is very similar to the one that you can download off our website. So it gives you a little bit of structure and it sees your, your development. And he threw a ball down to me and I looked at it and I went, it's a red dot. And he went, yeah, no. And he went, I said, yeah, but I'm a professional player, John. I don't play with anything but a double yellow. And he went, no, I want you to play with that. And could I hit that ball straight and control it? No, I couldn't. The ball was too bouncy. I had no ball control. So I had to then go back into learning techniques to control the ball, shortening swings, um, having bigger swings at the start, then slowing it down. And, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. Um, and very clever. And I've taken that from, from, you know, John into, you know, the players that I use, um, I work with now and, and, and all through my program. So, you know, they'll, they'll, do so, they'll do solo practice routines with them generally, but they'll play matches in the winter. They'll play matches to get the ball very hot. You know, your rally length is going to be a lot longer yeah. because the hang time's there. Players are going to get the ball back longer, for, for, uh, more, so that the rally length is more, your fitness is going to improve, and you actually have to learn to control that ball, regardless of how bouncy it is. Oh, for sure. You can yeah. still get the ball dying away into corners. Well, every, I mean, it, even with the double yellow ball, it's contingent upon uh, the conditions of the court, too. So you could be on a 
you know, you see some courts are incredibly bouncy with double yellow and then sometimes the ball just doesn't bounce anyway. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you met, I was going to ask you, uh, there were, I had a couple of technical questions, if you don't mind. And you, you brought up one of them and you, you referred to your website, uh, solo practice, which is something, uh, I've noticed that, that you, uh, you speak a lot about, uh, in your online stuff, uh, for the, for the more advanced or, you know, the, the top, like, club level players what sort of uh, solo routines uh, would you recommend it and and also uh, just give us a, the, the, the it's the infinitum website where we could find your the stuff that you have on it already right yeah so so i mean the, the solo practice sheet that is on there i mean if you go to infinitum squash.com um you know you'll see and obviously you know we'd love people to go and subscribe to the youtube channel and we, we did some filming yesterday on some other areas of the game and and um you know hopefully we find it very players find it very beneficial and we've had some fantastic feedback from that but i mean the solo practice i mean i mean we don't we don't want to come make it confusing i mean look the routines on there are the routines that i would get any of my players top level players it's just a way of getting of, of grooving timing the rhythm and that's what solo practice is about and I think where a lot of you know aspiring professionals miss is is the importance of that solo practice they get very bored so they're like oh they hit for five minutes and there's no structure to it and they get bored well if you if you are marking your scores down like you do on our solo practice sheet that we created and you're doing an overhit drive where you're hitting the front wall the ball hits the floor, hits the back wall, then you've got to hit. And you've got to keep that going. You know, if you get up to 10 or 15 shots there, that's your maximum score. Right. So, you know, we, we, I've, had, I've had like good, good, um, you know, county standard players do that solo practice sheet and they can get over 10 shots. <laughs> and they're like, oh my God, my ball control is terrible. Yeah. Like, why is it so bad? And I'm like, well, you know, it's, you've got to learn to, you know, this so much adaption in in the slight movement in in, in the differences in the swings yeah. obviously having that technical principle of the grip to create an open racket face softness in the hands you know not too tight um, and you know we, we've had players who have who have marked the scores down and, and said look at that I was three months ago I could only do 10 and now I'm doing 120 <laughs> on a regular basis yeah. so you see that improvement in uh, and, and that is going to translate into your game if you've got ball control in a close skill environment, you're going to have close comes. You're going to have ball control in an open skill environment, for sure. So you know it's something that I still do when I when in the lead up to an event. I'll do a lot of solo practice. I mean, I do incorporate the ball machine a little bit. Yeah. But um, you know that that hitting the ball just you know and any top professional player does solo practice. And what they say they don't, they're lying because oh, yeah, they do. Sure. Yeah. No, <laughs> for I'm, sure. Yeah. Uh, and do you do you uh, would you recommend incorporating? A, uh, this is what I do. I, I do a lot of that in my solo practice, but I also uh, incorporate. You know, I might do some court sprints in between. Uh, uh, over, you know, doing the doing my length, I might do a, a set of court sprints before I do the backhand, and then another set just to keep. Yeah. Uh, you know, it mix it up a bit. Absolutely, yeah, and I mean, you know, and look, any anything like that is 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 fantastic, and um, you know, I, I, and that's the beauty of, of keeping it fresh. You know, you have today. I'm going to do I'm going to do this, but then I'm going to do this, and and 
you know, if more players were able to, 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 to not just go on there and hit a ball and be bored after a few minutes, but to go on there and, and, and feel the value of that and incorporate a bit of fitness into it is fantastic. But going back to the balls, that's what I love about the ball. Yeah. You know, you use a blue dot, red dot ball. These kids, these kids are getting the fitness. You don't, I, what I get frustrated with is seeing kids turning up or hearing that kids are turning up for sessions and they're doing 200 court sprints before they actually hit a ball. <laughs> now, I'm not being funny, but... They, but they want to go home. I, I'd want to go home after that. They, they, I'd, 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 I'd want to go home after that. Yeah. So we, we, we as professional players know the value of court sprints, but a kid doesn't want to go and do that. So you incorporate a, a red dot ball, you improve the technique, there's not enough technical things being taught, so the kids are not able to adapt, you know, the racket face with the correct grip. And, you know, and like I say, you know, we, we've got kids, six, seven-year-old kids having 15, 20, sometimes 30-shot rallies. How enjoyable is that? Yeah. And not, if, if they're rallying, they, they're running. And if they're running, they're getting fitter. Oh, for so sure, yeah. they're getting the fitness through the playing, not just doing it because they're tiring them out because they're doing 200 court sprints. No, for sure. Uh, but when, uh, I mean, there's a time and place for court sprints, maybe. Of course there is. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be punishing the, the junior as well for, for unforced errors maybe at the, at the end of it. But that, that seems like the logical time to do it uh, would be at the end uh, as opposed to uh, punishing them at the beginning. Sure, I, I understand that. But again, I, I, want, I, want my, I want my players to leave. I want my young players to leave my, my infinitum squash with, I'm so excited about going back there ne next week yeah. and doing, look, court sprints are hard. <laughs> you oh, know, man. they're tough. I don't want my kid, to, I don't want my juniors, my younger players to, to come back. I, want to, I, I don't want them to come back because they, they leave on something that they don't enjoy doing. And I get, I get it, you know, there has to be discipline there, but it's, in, it's at the right time. If I'm working yeah. with Campbell Grayson, he might do court sprints at the end of the session because there's a value there and there's a bigger picture. Yeah. But for a six-year-old, seven-year-old kid, that might not quite work for them. So, you know, I think, I think, Jerry, that's the adaption of coaching as well. Yeah. And, you know, and our sport is a very, very tough sport and our players have to be very fit. But it's the adaption of, of being able to coach and work with different environments and work with different, sorry, not work in different environments, but working with different kids. Every kid is different. No, I couldn't um, agree more. You, know, I mean, I, you, I, don't, you don't want to incorporate court sprints at, at that young age, incorporate that sort of uh, uh, mentality uh, of the game being, being that way at a young age. You want to make it no. fun. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And there's not, I don't think there's enough of that happening. I think it is happening, but not enough. Certainly in the U.S. And I guess, uh, um, I mean, if you think about it, once uh, once a, a player matures, maybe into their mid-teens, later teens, uh, then they realize, uh, you know, that they want to improve, they want to get better, and uh, in order to do that, oh, cool. to do uh, yep. other things. Yeah, and I think that's that's the ability we have at Infinitum is, we, you know, we can coach a grassroots kid, um, a grassroots player who's never played the game before. We can inspire them, and my daughter you know, volunteers and she's 16 and she's an unbelievable coach because she's come through that process. So there's a coach and a, and a time and a place for, you know, if we've got a young 15, 16 year old who's like, look, I want to possibly, you, you know, I, I want to be a professional player in the future. What does it take? We know what it takes because, you know, I've played at that level. 
uh, we've got Matt Sidaway, who's our, our uh, assistant head pro, who has played at the top junior level in England. So he, understand, he understands more about the junior element than I do because I wasn't so much a successful junior only in the under-19s, but he's come through that pathway, so he gets it. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring him over and be part of the team because, you know, we, we can cater for, you know, the grassroots kids who love my daughter probably more than, more than me. <laughs> so she has fun with them. She teaches them the basic principles. And she hits balls and ropes with them and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we can also cater for, for the top professional player as well. And that's, that's what's so special about, uh, about our academy. Well, that's really good stuff, Nick. Uh, and it sounds like the academy is definitely uh, going uh, in the direction uh, uh, that we want it to go into, uh, develop players, develop more players, and uh, bring squash uh, uh, to another level uh, in, in uh, North America, in, in Boston anyways. But um, I just have one more, uh, uh, one more question. It's more of a selfish uh, a question on my behalf, but uh, I noticed the yep. video you had. Uh, it was really cool. The uh, the slow mo match uh, against Nick Matthew. I'm not sure when it was. It was relatively uh, recent, though. Um, and yep. uh, one thing that I struggle, uh, I've always struggled with in my game. I've never kind of been able to uh, incorporate it effectively. Is the uh, the split step and watching you guys in slow yep. motion. It's just, I mean, it, it, it's obviously uh, it's natural. Uh, it, it's a it's a habit that you have, and you make it look uh, so easy. For so for a player, uh, yeah. First of all, how important is it to uh, to have a split step? And uh, if if a player of sort like myself might struggle with uh, with doing that, uh, what would you uh, recommend? Okay, so um, I mean that video was taken uh, just over a year ago at our launch. Nick came over and did, did the launch event exhibition, and that was oh, filmed by. That was at the Infinitum um, launch. Okay. It, it, it was, yeah, it okay. was at the Infinitum launch. So, and it, it was a great piece of. Uh, I mean, we didn't realize that was being filmed by uh, a guy called Brad Moisio, who's one of our players here, and he filmed it in slow mo. It's a great video. But um, you, you're right. I mean, movement. I mean, you, you watch all the top players. I mean, you talk about the court sprints, you talk about solo practice, but. Movement ghosting is, is a huge part of it. And, and I'm glad you've asked the question because we've actually just done, uh, we've filmed a video yesterday actually on, on this hot movement that, that I did so much as a, as a younger player. Mm. And I, I think the movement patterns, I think the reason why amateur players struggle to put, um, to put ghosting into the game is because they don't ghost in the right way. So I think I think one of the best ways of, 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 of actually using the movement ghost is actually imagine you're playing an opponent. Mm -hmm. Get your obviously there's no pressure there because there's no ball, but obviously you, you get your movement patterns and you work in these these movement patterns in a, in a in a in a in an environment where you feel like you're playing a match. Then it becomes a lot more specific. You're tracking the ball and you, you're getting more of a specific movement. That's the first thing. But this video that we've done, and it'll be online in, in the next week or so, um, I, I think if you can incorporate this, this hot movement that we show, what it does is it gets rid of a lot of the small, unnecessary movements that amateur players do, which yeah. creates a little bit of confusion in the split step. The split step is a, is a massive part of the game and actually happens naturally uh, yeah. for a lot of the pro players. They're not really thinking about, they might be thinking about patterns of movement, but not maybe necessarily the split step. 
Um, so I, I'd, I'd really love you to watch that video. It'll be online in about a week's time. I'd like you to um, try it out. Um, it's not something that you're going to incorporate into your games. You're not going to think about it in your games, but you're going to do this a lot in your practice. And I'm telling you now that it will take a lot of these unnecessarily, unnecessary steps that amateur players take uh, to get to the ball. It will start to eradicate those out of your movement and your movement will become a lot more efficient. But okay. I always like to think about, I always like to get my players to think about being very light on the feet. Yeah. You know, when they're so gliding across the court. And obviously, the movement links into the grip and the swing. I mean, people oh, for sure. forget that. It's not in isolation. These things work, these things work together. So, you know, if, if, if the grip is not right or the wrist is very tight or the, or the arm is very close to the body, that's going to massively affect movement. Yeah. So I think those technical principles that I talk about, which, you know, I did a lot with through DP and the stuff that he did, you know, and, and learning from other coaches and learning from other players. And, um, you know, those technical principles are, are what, what DP taught me. So I've used those technical principles and adapted them and, and try and get my players to look like individual. I don't want my players to look manufactured. I want my players yeah. to look individual, but I want my players to have the same technical principles because that's what affects movement. So they definitely don't work in isolation. And we, and we've, we cover all that on the, on the, um, on the Infinitum YouTube channel. So, you know, okay. I'd love people to go on there to subscribe to it oh, and, sure. uh, and give us feedback, email us. And, and we you know, we, we answered a question the other day for someone and we put that online and, uh, well, once, once this new video online, comes so. up, uh, Nick, once the new video on, on the movement comes up, I'll, I'll definitely uh, incorporate it into. Uh, I'm 50 now, but I, I'm still uh, still working hard. Trying, I want playing crack yeah. you, over in the 50 plus. You, 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 you're a whippersnapper. 50 is <laughs> only a number, Jerry. Come on, <laughs> exactly. You've still got and, and Jerry, Jerry, don't forget that these, these are, the movement is a technical thing, and this is another series that I've done about masters players. You know oh, the, the problem we have with masters. The problem we have with masters players, they go to younger coaches, and the younger coaches who have no experience at masters level say, "Oh, you just get fitter. If you're the fittest player there, you'll win." And the problem is, they try to get fit, then they get injured. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. The body can't. The body can't do it. Yeah. So you've got to think of a different way. So we talk. So this new series we filmed yesterday, which will be online again, this is another series, of, uh, uh, you know, apart from the, the movement one, is talking about Masters Squash in particular and, and my preparations for the world and, and just thinking a little bit differently. And everyone can change a technique. Yeah. Not everyone can do 200 core sprints. Oh, no. no, no, I'm <laughs> sure. The body gets, uh, the body gets just, older, uh, the muscles get dehydrated, and, oh, yeah. and the joints get tighter. And you well, I woke up this work. morning, I, I was, I played had a playing in a golf tournament in the morning and I did 300 court sprints yesterday <laughs> and I woke up this morning wow. barely like I, I mean I was so stiff I was like holy god yeah of course and, and and Jerry my, my my preparations for the world I I didn't pick a racket up until a month before the world championships and right. for three weeks of those of those four weeks I played squash 57 I didn't even play a game of squash why? Yeah. Because if I play a hard game of squash, I can't walk for two or three days. If yeah. I play a hard game of squash 57, I can play day after day after day after day because it's a different, slightly different movement. But what that does is I can control a very bouncy ball and my heart and lungs are getting the best workout ever. And then a week before, I just sharpen up. 
yeah. by playing a, a hard game, a, a few hard games of squash. So and squash I don't 57 get that uh, because something because that's going to be coming up on your infin on the uh, YouTube. We 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 did again. It was one of, we did a, a series of about. 10, 12 videos yesterday, and Squash 57 is one of them. Oh, great. Okay. So they're, they're all going to be online in the, next, uh, in the next week or so. Fantastic, Nick. Well, Nick, you've been really uh, great with your time, and I just want to say thank you so much uh, for coming on to the podcast. It was fantastic to, uh, to, to meet you this way, and uh, all the best with Infinitum Squash, and I hope we can do it again, uh, uh, do it again soon. Thanks, Jerry, for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I apologize if my passion came through a little bit strongly in that interview. But oh, no, uh, no, I, no. I love the game. Oh, oh, this was fantastic. This is exactly, uh, I mean, it was a great chat about squash and, and uh, it's uh, the best sport in the world. Thanks, Jerry. And, uh, and keep up your good work. I, I always listen to your, your cast. It's brilliant. The podcast, they're great. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much, Nick. Take care and talk to you soon. See you later. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for coming on to the podcast. Some really, really good stuff there. In fact, uh, once this episode drops, I'm going to have to download it myself and uh, listen to it again. Um, I remember, of course, I know Nick, uh, knew Nick from his playing days. He was back in the generation of when I started really uh, following the pro game. I think it started to become more uh, accessible via the Internet, and it was also on Star Sports where I was living. In, uh, in Korea, and I think he was he was usually in the draws back in the Jonathan Power, Peter Nickel, uh, David Palmer days. And uh, I knew of him then. I saw his video there at the launch. I uh, didn't realize it was the launch of Infinitum, but I saw the slow-mo of him playing uh, Nick Matthew, and that whole thing that, that we were talking about there, the split step in slow motion, was fascinating to me. And uh, I had to ask him about that, and then I read the piece on Squash Mad, uh, uh, dot com about the red dot ball and it all made sense to me and it just seems like uh, and, it, and as it turned out it's true Nick knows what he's talking about and he's got some really great ideas those are just two of them and as it turned out he's got some incredible uh, insight into the game technically and also in terms of uh, development as we heard so thank you so much Nick it was really great having you on him hope uh, would love to have him on more regularly a few year over the year the next few years so that would be great uh, thank you so much Nick and uh, we've got some good ones coming up as well so keep on listening thanks so much everyone goodbye now